Uh, it's got to be one of the harder readings for the year, I think. <laughs> um, but I thought, uh, as we were talking about, what, what do we do the week before Christmas, as we anticipate Christmas, as we look forward to it? Uh, I thought, let's just start the way that Matthew does. Um, Matthew begins his biography of Jesus with, uh, with that genealogy that we just read, and right after that launches into what we're f- more familiar with as the Christmas story. Um, and so what we're reading are the opening lines to the Gospel of Matthew, and therefore to the whole New Testament. And English teachers everywhere will, will tell you that the, a good set of opening lines can set up everything that is to come. And so to kick us off, I've got a few opening lines, and I'm keen to see if anyone can recognize any of them. So if you know it, shoot up your hand um, and, and, and tell us what it is. So I'll start with a couple of classics. Uh, it is a truth universally... <laughs> oh, no. Uh, <laughs> yes? Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, universally knowledge that a single man in a possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Another, it was the best of times. <laughs> yes. Yep. Um, no, actually. Someone else? Oh, we'll go. Um, Tale of Two Cities, that's it. It's the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was an age of wisdom, an age of foolishness, and on it goes. I'll go moving away from the kind of classic classics now. Um, far out in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy lies a small, unregarded yellow sun. Yep. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that is. Um, just a couple more. Um, at dusk, they pour from the sky. They blow across the ramparts, turn cartwheels over rooftops, flutter into ravines between houses. Entire streets swirl with them, flashing against, white against the cobbles. Urgent messages to the inhabitants of the town. They say, depart immediately to open country. We're moving, sorry? Yes, well done. I wasn't sure if anyone would get that. All the light we cannot see. It's a picture of the, uh, the uh, planes coming over, dropping leaflets to let everyone know there's bombs coming. Get out of the city. Uh, last one. Um, this is my favorite book in the whole world, though I have never read it. Oh, no. <laughs> You've read The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, that is The Princess Bride. I put that one in there for the Liggins family, thinking surely, surely someone will get it. <laughs> um, well, in the past, as I've opened up the, book, the, the, the New Testament, I've, I've found myself asking, why start with a long list of names? In recording a biography of the most significant figure in the history of the world, why start with a long list of names? And it's a fair question. Why does Matthew choose to start here? Many modern readers, um, especially some of the young people that I lead, find themselves skimming over these parts, waiting for the Christmas story to begin. But for others, this has been a, a really significant moment. I was actually just chatting to Warwick Coglin. Some of you might know him this morning. He was telling me a, t- a story of the, um, a whole tribe from the... I can't actually read my writing. From the river Cirrus? Someone will correct me on this. Who became Christians from Matthew 1. Um, basically, there was these uh, translators from Wycliffe, uh, same as Matt and Don Tillman, um, who were translating the Gospel of Matthew into one of the local tribal languages. And they started from Matthew 2, because they thought, well, genealogy, that, that's kind of not, not really relevant. We know that stories are what get, gets kind of across to people. And so they started from Matthew 2, telling the story of, of Jesus' birth, and went on to finish the gospel. And then finally, at the end, so all of this is kind of being passed onto the tribes. They're kind of hearing the stories as they go. 
Um, but it, the penny doesn't drop until they come back to the beginning, translate Matthew 1, and uh, for them, suddenly it's this realization, oh, this is actually real, this is true. All these stories that we've been hearing, they're, they're, they're based in reality. Um, so for some people, this has been incredibly significant. Uh, the, the whole tribe then kind of put their faith in Jesus because of the, the, that, um, those lines. For a more a negative example, there's kind of heretics in church history who have just left this part out. Um, Marcion of Sinope was one who was trying to draw a wedge between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New T Testament. He tried to say that Jesus was a, a new God um, that kind of superseded the God of the Old Testament. And to do that, he kind of he actually just tore this part out because this, this pa passage of Scripture so deeply roots Jesus in the promises of the Old Testament that he couldn't uh, reconcile that with, with his kind of heretical views. And so, you know, throughout history, this has been a really significant um, passage for people for, for various reasons. Um, and so I'm really keen to kind of dive into it together at least to pause it long enough to, to consider why start with a long list of names? How could it, how could it be so, so significant? And I think the answer is this. Matthew wants us to know who Jesus is. Simple. And where Jesus comes from is key to understanding who Jesus is. This passage is a bold statement of the identity of Jesus. The people at the time were waiting for, for the one who would come as a blessing to all nations, the son of Abraham. And they were the longing for the, the king who would come, who would rule forever in perfect justice and righteousness, the son of David. And the genealogy says, this is him. That's the big idea that it's there in verse one. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's what Matthew's trying to get across, the big picture. But what's interesting is that Matthew doesn't just include the details necessary to get that across. He actually includes a lot of things that are strictly unnecessary to proving that point. And in fact, he volunteers information that almost feels a bit juxtaposed to that, to this glorious vision of, of Jesus, the, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And so we're going to look at this passage in three parts, looking at Jesus, the son of Abraham, where we'll see that Jesus fulfills the promise of the divine blessing that all nations would be blessed through the line of Abraham. And then at the, Jesus, the son of David, we'll see that Jesus fulfills the promise of a perfect king who would reign forever in, in justice and righteousness. And then we'll focus on those additional details that, that, that are volunteered to try to work out, is there something else that, that Matthew's trying to get across as well? Why include those? And we'll see there that he was not only the divine blessing to all nations and the divine king to rule forever, but that he was born into the, into the mess, not just into the, the stable, into the literal mess, but into the mess of humanity that, as we are. And so let's start, start with the main details. Matthew puts it right up there, right up front in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then the whole genealogy is structured around those two figures. And then in case you missed it there at the end, he brings it back again. Thus there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Messiah. Messiah doesn't want us to miss the fact that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David. Why? Well, let's start with Abraham. Uh, Abraham was one of the one on whom the promises of God were, were first bestowed, really, that the father of the nation of Israel. I listen to the words that God spoke to him um, in Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
And that reminds us of, of two things. One, the sons of Abraham became the great nation of Israel. When he says, I will make you great into a great nation, that, that's how Israel kind of find their identity as the sons of Abraham. So that, so that is to say, Jesus is not an outsider. He's a true Israelite, not, not a Gentile. Jesus is the, the Jewish Messiah, but come from among them. But Matthew says not, not only that he's a son of Abraham, but that he's the son of Abraham. And that's because we also have an expectation that through the line of Abraham, all people on earth would be blessed. They've been waiting for this one of Abraham's descendants, the son of Abraham, the son of Abraham, through whom the whole world would be blessed. And that matters, matters for them, matters for us too, because you would respond differently to someone if you introduce them knowing that they, they come, they've come to be a blessing to everyone, including you. But that picture is inseparable from the, the, the son of David, you might know the story of David. At a young age, he was overlooked as the youngest child, but God chose him to be king, not because he was the most impressive or most logical for the throne, but because he was a man after God's own heart. He was a good king and followed God patiently, but he also did some really, truly terrible things. And eventually God stripped the, the, the rule away in, in death and gave it to his son as a consequence for his wrongdoing. But significantly, he promised that one would come after him who would rule perfectly, and his kingdom would never be taken away. Uh, we, we read the words um, earlier about the long-awaited son of David. In Isaiah 9, when it says, For us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will rule on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. To hear that great hope for the nation of Israel, that, that the son of David would come, that he would lead them and rule them in justice and righteousness forever. That was the great hope that the people were longing for, waiting for at the time, the, the long-awaited king, the son of David. And so... I've never been particularly fascinated by my family history, partly because that's not really my thing, but partly because my family history is actually just not that exciting. <laughs> I know others for whom it's, it's a really exciting thing who have spent hours and hours pouring through ancient records. Um, one of my friends is uh, a, a, from a Chilean background, and for her, she says it's, that her history explains so much of who she is. It feels like whenever she does something that's kind of unusual, she's like, oh, that's, that's a Chilean thing. Um, but, but there would be others for whom family history is, is key to who you are. It explains everything about you. Or imagine if you were royalty and a nephew or a cousin of a king, or, then your family history would become incredibly significant because that's your promise of royalty. You would hold on to that. Well, Jesus' family tree here is actually much more important than that. It's not only a link to, to royalty, but to all the promises of God. And so that's a very grand sweep of the history of Jesus, to, to start with that, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That, that, is, that is a grand picture of the divine king, the divine blessing to all nations. But what's unusual then is, is where Matthew breaks the pattern. There are, there are a number of times when he, he breaks that pattern of, you might have heard it as we were reading through, there's kind of a rhythm that, that X was the father of Y and Y was the father of X, but then inserted into that are a few extra details that aren't, don't really need to be there to, to show that he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
And so have a quick flick through with me again. That, um, and we're going to look at those details that are inserted to work out, is, is there something else that Matthew's trying to get across? The first is there just in, in verse 3. He says, Judah, oh, sorry, verse 2, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. That's a reminder of, of the 12 brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel. Affirming again, Jesus is a true Israelite within those 12 tribes. But from there is where it gets kind of quite unusual. The next is Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. There's no need to include, uh, kind of tradition dictates that you would just kind of list the men's names. And so it's interesting that Tamar is mentioned. And the birth story of, of Perez and Zerah, in particular, it's, a, it's one of incredible drama, and it's actually quite uncomfortable to, to read through. Um, Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute in order to trick her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her so that she can have his children. But when, she, when he finds out that she's pregnant, he orders her killed until he realizes that it's his own children that she's pregnant with. And then he realizes hypocrisy, takes it back, and so Perez and Zerah are born. And it's through them that the messianic promise is preserved. And Tamar herself was, was probably an outsider to the faith. One, one of the early Jewish historians, Philo, rec- identifies her as a Gentile woman from Syria, Palestine. And from there on, the, the rest of the insertions are kind of all, all women of similar lines, often associated with a life of sin, often uh, all, all Gentiles, if not by blood, then by association. Uh, Rahab is, is a prime example of both. She's the next one inserted in verse 5. Um, Rahab was a prostitute from the, the enemy city of Jericho who turned to help the Israelites and by way of reward was welcomed in when her city was destroyed. A, a, a Gentile and a prostitute. And it's through her that the Messianic promise is preserved. Straight after that uh, is Ruth. Ruth would have been known for being an outsider who was welcomed in. Uh, Ruth was a Moabite who came to Judah to accompany her widowed mother-in-law. And there she met Boaz, spent time in his fields, and eventually took her in as his wife. It's a story of an outsider being brought in. And it's a story through which God preserved the Messianic line. And then the final insertion uh, in verse 6 is the, the wife of Uriah, who we know as Bathsheba. Now, interestingly, Bathsheba wasn't an Israelite, but Uriah, her husband, w- sorry, Bathsheba was an Israelite, but Uriah was a Hittite. And so while Bathsheba did have Israelite heritage, she would have been brought into the family of her husband and would likely have been considered a Hittite by association, especially when Matthew uses his name to remember her. And so like Rahab and Tamar, um, she is an outsider, and she's also kind of caught up in a life of sin, although hers, her name is infamous not because of her own sin, but because of that of King David, who saw her bathing on a roof, called her in, slept with her, and did everything he could to cover that up, eventually having Uriah killed and taking Bathsheba as his own wife. They're ugly and uncomfortable stories, um, the, the wife of Uriah, married into a Hittite family, led to the, great down, the, the downfall of the great King David. And yet that is how the, the promises of God through the Messianic line are preserved. And so Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife. The question that the, the, it raises is why include the, the women when d- tradition dictates that you list all the men's names? And if he's going to include women, one of the, the great matriarchs of the faith, Sarah, Rebecca, or Leah... Why draw our attention to, to Gentiles and outsiders? 
and to the messy situations through which the messianic line is preserved. Well, I think it's exactly that. We need reminding that God welcomes outsiders and that he enacts his great promises often through strange and unexpected ways and often through ordinary people like ourselves. Now, those women are remembered as, as women of great faith, but it's God's great work through them that is remem- remembered here. And so with that in the back of our minds, it then comes as no surprise the strange and unexpected circumstances into which the Messiah is born. Now, the very next story is of Joseph accepting the strange news that his virgin fiance is now pregnant. And when he hears this news, well, it comes as no surprise to us. We have all these stories running in the back of our heads that God works in mysterious ways. When the angel says to him in verse 21 that, that Jesus will save his people from their sin, and we know of the need for something like that to happen because the history of God's people is one littered with the marks of sin. And for us today, when, when that person comes to the Christmas service next week that you really didn't expect, you just put the invite out, well, we've got in our heads that God, God works in mysterious ways. And when they repent and, and turn from their life of sin, it, it should come as no surprise because God saves people out of sin. And when they're welcomed into community, we, we, we know that God has always been in the habit of bringing outsiders into the fold. And so as you prepare for Christmas, and, and we remember again that strange and wonderful story, you would do, do well to remember that while it may be a shock that the king of kings would be born in a manger, it's no surprise to the way that God works in strange and unexpected ways. In fact, God makes a point again and again of working through strange unexpected and even sinful ways in order to bring about his great purposes and promises. The glorious Messiah, the divine blessing to all the world, the divine king, announced by myriad of angels singing his glory as the son of the most high, then born to a virgin in an animal stable in a feeding trough. The divine blessing, the divine king born into the mess. Well, of course, That is always how God has worked. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the divine blessing. We thank you that all nations have been blessed through him and that he will come to rule and to reign in perfect justice and righteousness forever. We thank you as well that he was born into our mess, that he came to to live among us, God with us, and that he knows